Amen. Jesus only, Jesus, help me trust you more and more. What a prayer. That is the cry of our heart to trust our Savior. Last Lord's Day, we had the privilege of diving into Psalm 32 to look at a new year living in light of the Lord's forgiveness, finding joy in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And I hope that you were able to go away last week and spend some time reflecting, maybe looking for that progression that we saw in Psalm 32 of of calling sin what it is, seeing the guilt that's going on inside of us, the gracious gift that guilt is to enable us to run to the cross. But if you weren't able to do self-reflecting last Lord's Day or even last week, I want to ask you to do it right now with me. And I want to do it by asking you a question, and I want to preface this question by saying, don't dwell on this question for too long. Uh, run to the cross instantly. I don't want to take you into a place of self-pity or despair. But I do think it's important to ask this question because of what we're going to look at this morning. So let me ask you, what's the worst thing that you've ever done? Again, don't dwell on it too quickly. Run to the cross. It's forgiven in Christ. But what's the worst thing that you've ever done? The reason why I think that we need to ask that question is because my guess is you've actually done something worse than what you're thinking of. You've done something worse than what you're thinking. Right now, whatever your mind goes to, you have done something worse than that. That something is the root that blossoms into hundreds, if not thousands, of sins, that something is unbelief. Unbelief sits at the bottom of all of the sin that we commit. It's the very essence of sin. You remember Jesus says in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 9, that the Holy Spirit will be sent in order to convict the world of sin because of their unbelief. Sin flows from unbelief. It's the oldest sin in the book. The sin in the Garden of Eden that begets the sin of actually eating the fruit is that Adam and Eve did not believe that God was for them. They believed the lie of the devil that God was against them, that God was holding out on them. God has interests that he doesn't want you to have. He has things in his mind that he thinks they're too good for you and I don't want you to have them. That's what the devil was preaching and that's what they believed. Here's the reality. Most people think that they are good people because of what they have not done. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't. You fill in the blank. And they think that they're good people. But it's actually what people haven't done that makes them not good. They haven't believed. They have concluded some way, shape, or form in their life that they don't need Jesus the way that he says they need him. And so every time that we sin, we're acting as functional unbelievers, practical atheism. You are believing lies and not receiving what Jesus says is true in his word. The reason I say all that is here in Mark chapter 6, we are going to see the sin of unbelief 
on full display. On full display. We'll see two realities of unbelief. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Last we left off in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, one of the high points of the Gospel. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. A chapter filled with belief, actually. You have these two individuals as you end that chapter, Jairus and the old woman with the issue of blood. And they have incredible belief in the Lord. Jesus even tells Jairus, you've been believing, don't stop. I know that it's hard to believe, but keep on believing. But the Gospel of Mark is very much like a roller coaster. There are high peaks and there are low valleys. And Mark 6 is one of the lowest points in this gospel. It's a very, very low valley. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 together. Ask the Lord's blessing on our time and stare straight at the reality of unbelief. Mark writes in verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching This is the word of God. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to open your word, to hear from you. God, we just ask forgiveness right off the bat. We take this for granted so often. What a privilege to be able to hear you speak in your word, from your word. And God, we want to submit you, the creator of the universe, our maker, you are speaking to us and we want to submit to what you are saying. So Father, give us teachable hearts, give us humble hearts, give us hearts that are desperate, dependent on you, not self-reliant. Show us our desperation. And God, guard us from unbelief. It is something that we all struggle with to varying degrees. And I pray that you would show us this morning the reality of the heart of unbelief, what it is, what it does. That we would hate unbelief, that we would fight hard against it. And that we would be able to walk out of this place with a greater depth of faith, belief, clinging to Christ than we had before. But only because of your word and only because of your spirit, not because of anything that we have, even as we sang earlier, 
There is no merit that we can bring. Even once we are saved, there is no merit that we can offer that forces you to act on our behalf. So we come and we just ask, be gracious, be merciful to us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things. We need you to give us that gracious gift of illumination without which we will not see what we need to see. We will not believe what we need to believe. So give us hearts to receive. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 give us two staggering realities about unbelief. But it begins in verse 1 with Jesus going out from there, which is probably the region of Capernaum, to the north of the Sea of Galilee. He's somewhere in the region of the Sea of Galilee because that's where he was when he was healing Jairus' daughter, raising her from the dead, and the woman with the issue of blood. So he's somewhere in the, uh, the region of Galilee. And from there, he's going to go to his hometown, which is Nazareth. It's about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's a small little place. Even to this day, it's still pretty much just a cul-de-sac. You go up there on a big bus. You see it on a cliffside. You turn around and you go back home. It's not a massive area. Back then, in Jesus' day, estimates range uh, in different um, dimensions of what it would be, but somewhere around 40 acres of land. Nazareth makes up about 40 acres of land, and somewhere around 400 people would have lived there. So 40 acres, 400 people, It's a small village. And it's fascinating that Jesus is going there. The reason why it's fascinating that he's going there is because he already went there in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, when he went to his hometown and went into the synagogue and opened the scroll to read, he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And the synagogue began to murmur and get angry. And he spoke. Remember, Jesus spoke at that time about how the Messiah is sent not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And that is what infuriates the people. And they take him and try to throw him off the cliff. That happened about a year before this text. If I'm Jesus, I would say, well, we can check Nazareth off the list, right? And tried to throw me off a cliff. I'm done. Never going back there again. But not Jesus. Not our Savior. He goes back. He goes back. Because they deserve it? No. Because he is filled with kindness. This is so informative. Even in the way that we share the gospel with people. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Understand that you will be met with opposition. But don't give up. So he goes back to Nazareth. He's probably wondering what he's going to find there. They're probably wondering what he's going to say there. And verse 1 says his disciples followed him. He brings his disciples. This is informative for his disciples. This experience will inform Jesus' disciples and prepare them for the missionary journeys that they're about to be sent on. The next section in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus sending out his disciples two by two into the land of Israel. And before they're sent out to preach the Gospel, Jesus wants to show them That it's not always going to be roses and good times and miracles and all those things. It's going to be difficult. There'll be rebellion. There'll be kickback. And there will be rejection and unbelief. Verse 2, when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. He stands up. He begins to teach. He reads the scroll and he expounds on what the scroll would be meaning, would be saying. 
Maybe the crowd is wondering, what's he going to say this time? We'll give him another chance. Is he going to speak what is right from the Torah? Or is he going to exalt himself? Maybe he's learned his lesson and he's done. And the many listeners become astonished. My Bible says astonished. It's a Greek word that means to hit something so hard it explodes. It blows up. I love that the Greek language has a word that we would just, in our vernacular, say Jesus blew their minds, right? That's what it's saying. He blew their minds. He's blowing them up with what he's saying. And Mark actually uses the word uh, hyper uh, to say it's uh, super blown up. He is just blowing their minds left and right. They're super exploded by his teaching. But as we see in verses 2 and 3, They're not amazed by Jesus. They're amazed that the things that he is doing, the things he's doing are coming from him. That's what they're amazed at. How do these things match up? How do they add up? How do they connect? They're not amazed at who Jesus is. They're asking, how can he be doing these things? And this leads us to the first reality of unbelief. Unbelief, we'll see two realities in these verses. The first reality is this. Unbelief rejects what is clear because it is too common. Unbelief rejects what is clear because it is too common. It rejects what's simple and straightforward because it's so straightforward. They're going to ask five questions in verses two and three. Where did he get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are these miracles performed by him? Isn't he the son of Mary? And aren't his sisters here too? And these five questions, we're going to go through them. They demonstrate that they are asking things that prove there's no way Jesus can be who he claims to be because we know him. We're familiar with him. Let's start with the first question. They say in verse 2, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? Notice they're astonished by his teaching. But astonishment is not equal to saving faith. You can be astonished by Jesus and not have saving faith. They're saying, in essence, we, not, we might not be able to explain how he's doing all of these things, but we know who he is. He's Jesus. He's not the Messiah. We know who he is. We don't know how he's doing all these things, but we know who he is. There are people in the synagogue that have probably changed his diapers. They probably watched him trip and fall. Probably seen him lose some games with all the other kids playing out in Nazareth. Maybe their own sons were quicker at walking than Jesus. Maybe somebody is saying, you know what? My son started walking faster than Jesus. There's no way that he can be Messiah when my son was faster at doing things than he is. My son started talking before Jesus. Maybe my son's the Messiah instead of Jesus. That's what they're saying. They're not saying, wow, look at how impressive his wisdom is. They're saying exactly what the Pharisees said. You remember the Pharisees heard Jesus teach. They saw him do miracles. And they say, uh, he did it by the power of the devil. That's what they're asking. How did he do this? Because we know it can't be that he's the Messiah. We know who he is. They're too familiar with him. Same thing with miracles. They're astonished by the miracles as performed by his hands. Where did he get the ability to do these miracles? Did he do them by the power of the devil? How did he do this? Because we know who this guy is. Again, they don't deny that he did miracles. Miracles are great, but miracles don't produce saving faith. Astonishment at Jesus' teaching do not produce saving faith. Miracles do not produce saving faith. 
They say, is this not the carpenter? Verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? Carpenter, uh, the Greek word is tekton. It can mean really anyone who is involved in building something, crafting something. It was used of uh, woodworking, yes, but it was also used of stone masons. Jesus probably worked with all of those different um, elements, all those different aspects of uh, just building things. It's actually where we get the word tech from, tekton. We get the word tech from as an architect, somebody who's building something. What they're asking is this guy is a worker with his hands just like we are. He's just like us. Who does he think he is? Maybe somebody says, you know what, my son is a lawyer. Surely you can't believe that this blue-collar worker is the Messiah. My son's a lawyer. They're getting tripped up over how common Jesus is. and They think that there should be some more complexity to it. They ask, verse 3, is this not the son of Mary? Son of Mary, that's... Very strange. That should jar you as you're reading the New Testament because people were always called the son of their father. So there's two ways that we would understand why they're saying son of Mary. Either, number one, Joseph is already dead, which is very possible. So he's already out of the picture. And so they're saying son of Mary. But even when the father would die, you would still call that individual the son of their father. So my guess is, They're pointing out the lingering stigma that would follow Jesus his entire life. Namely, that he had been conceived out of wedlock. John 8, 41, the Pharisees say, we were not born of fornication, were we? They're saying, like you were, we know your origins. You were born of fornication. However, they're saying this, it's not a compliment. It's a ridicule. He's the son of Mary. He can't be the Messiah. He also has brothers, He has brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and he has sisters. If anyone knows who you really are, Jesus, it's us who watched you grow up. That's what they're saying. People back then didn't like how normal he is. People today don't like how normal he is. People say, well, he couldn't have been that normal. And so we have to say that his mom was unique. Somehow she was holy. Or actually he never had brothers and sisters. The you know, perpetual virginity of Mary. All those things come into context here because people are saying it's just too common. We need to add layers to it. Jesus was normal. And people get tripped up by that. This passage clearly teaches that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Contrary to what different sects of religion would teach, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, this clearly teaches that she was not. The word for brothers, Adelphos, where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's brothers. It's a a family. I love this. We, We know Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. He is the oldest of five boys and two girls. The sisters aren't named, probably because they're married at this point, and so they're in different families. They're also most likely not even there. But the brothers are named, four brothers, and they do amazing things in the church. We know a couple of them did incredible things. James, he's also called James the Just, he will lead the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. He will be martyred in 62 AD. He wrote the book of James An amazing man of God, Judas, brother of Jesus. He's going to write the book Jude. Um, Once 
Judas betrayed Jesus, the other Judas, once he betrayed Jesus, the Judases of the world went by Jude, not Judas. They didn't want to be associated with Judas, so they went by Jude. So you have the book of Jude, written by this man, Judas. You have Joseph. Uh, Matthew tells us that Joseph, his other name was Joseph. He's named after his father. And you have Simon, another brother. But what you need to know is at this point, all of these brothers do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe. Later they will, because of the resurrection. But here they don't. And again, I would just encourage you, don't lose hope and don't lose heart if there are people in your life that don't believe Jesus is who he claims to be. Even Jesus couldn't convince his family to believe. And he had to wait and wait and keep on loving them and keep pointing them to the truth. But here's the question. Why did his family not believe? Why did his siblings not believe? Why did the townspeople not believe? Why their unbelief? Because they're too familiar with him to be impressed by him. They're too familiar. And this is at the heart of unbelief that you just say, I'm not impressed. And this is my biggest concern for us at CBC is that we would somehow stop being impressed by Jesus. That's my biggest fear for our church because if you stop being impressed by Jesus, then you will start being impressed by other things. And that will pull you away. My biggest fear is that Jesus would somehow become normal to us. That he'd become an afterthought instead of our every thought. Familiarity breeds contempt, we say. We could also say it biblically, familiarity breeds unbelief. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 kind of gives us an element of this. There's like a, an inoculation of Christianity. In Hebrews 6, he says that people that get close to Christ, they get close to the church, they get involved, they see, they taste, they're a part of it. They're not truly saved, but they're a part of it, they're around it, and then they choose to walk away. If they were not impressed by Jesus and they've been involved in all these things and they get impressed by something else, they're never coming back. Why? Because they became inoculated. They got just enough of Christianity to become immune to it. Galatians 5 would say the same thing. So they take offense, end of verse 3. They're too familiar. So this man makes claims that are just offensive. They take offense at him, verse 3. That word offense, the Greek word scandalon, where we get scandal from, you can hear it in that word. He's a scandal to them. They can't reconcile these issues. We know his commonality, and yet he claims to be the Son of God, God incarnate, and the Messiah. How do we explain those two together? And they say, we can't. They, they took offense. It's easy for us to think, if you think back on your college days, if somebody that you went to college with became president, it'd be easy for you to go, oh, wow, I went to college with that guy. That's crazy that they'd become president. I know them. We used to room together. We used to be in the dorms together. I know them. There's a difference here, though, because colleges have thousands of people. Nazareth had about 400 people. Everyone knows everybody. When they're rattling through this list of names, uh, the son of Mary, brother James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters are here with us, they're rattling through about 20% of the city. They know everyone. 
And they say, we, we love you, Jesus, but you're just a local boy. People went to school with him. People knocked on Mary and Joseph's door and said, can Jesus come out to play? And Mary had to say, not yet. He's finishing his homework and he'll be out when he's done. That's, that's the kind of reality that they grew up with. There was nothing about Jesus and his family that would have suggested as he's growing up in Nazareth that he's anything but ordinary. And so they have an incredibly hard time seeing through the veil of his ordinariness. He's just a generic guy. By the way, side note, I love this. I love that there is such an ordinariness to Jesus because in our context and culture in evangelicalism this has waned over the last few years but especially when I was in college or uh, when I was in high school and college there was a big push back then there's even a book called radical that came out there's a big push for if you aren't living in utter poverty because you're giving every last cent to the local church and to missionaries if you aren't going to Africa if you aren't doing that you are not living a godly Christian life and there was such a burden placed on people to live radical lives. And we should live radical lives, amen and amen. But you have to define what that radical looks like. And I love Jesus' Jesus's example here because Jesus, the most radical human being that ever lived, was so boring for 30 years of his life that people said, you can't be the Messiah. And yet in that boringness, in that ordinariness, he is doing something supernaturally miraculous every second of every day. What's he doing? He's perfectly obeying the Father and winning for us a perfect record of righteousness. And while he's doing that, people are unimpressed by him. He was tempted in every point that we are. He woke up, he did his chores, he respected his parents, he quietly went about his business, all the while earning our salvation for us. So brothers and sisters, be comforted. You should absolutely give your life to the local church, to missions, to the Lord. Give your life. We have one life. Only what's done for Christ will last. Absolutely live for him. But you can do that while 1 Thessalonians 4.11 is true, that you are making it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend your own business. Work with your hands and glorify the Lord every step of the way. These people were so astonished by Jesus, but their astonishment so quickly turned to skepticism because they desired complexity over what was common. And so Jesus responds in verse 4 by saying, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. This is a, a phrase or an idiom that was used back then. Some of the phrases that Jesus uses that we know, uh, like live by the sword, die by the sword, those are phrases he made up. This phrase is not one he made up. He's using this. This was a known phrase. The way the actual idiom back then would have gone was, quote, a doctor is not without honor with those whom he heals, except if the people know him. If you're familiar with that person, then you don't esteem that person. You, you don't honor that person. You're not impressed by that person. You know them. And so Jesus takes that idiom and he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. If you ever think people find you incredibly impressive, just bring them to your family. <laughs> and your family will tell you what's what. 
So unbelief, the unbelief that we see here rejects what is clear simply because it's too common. There's got to be more to this. There's got to be something deeper. There's got to be something more complex. We know this man. We're familiar with him. We're unimpressed by him. He can't be the guy. The second reality, because of that, number two, unbelief prevents you from enjoying the full satisfaction of the Savior. Unbelief prevents you from enjoying the full satisfaction of the Savior. This is verses 5 and 6. Unbelief prevents you from enjoying the full satisfaction that Christ has to offer. Verse 5, he could do no miracle there. There are so many people that have come up with false religions based off of this verse. False doctrines based off of this verse. They say that it's your amount of faith that enables Jesus to be powerful or that somehow Jesus is weak and he's unable to do these miracles. What does this mean? What does verse 5 mean? He could do no miracle there. Well, this is what's helpful about studying parallel passages. Matthew 13 is the parallel passage to Mark chapter 6. Matthew 13 says it much more clearly. Verse 58, Matthew 13, verse 58, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus didn't do works because of their unbelief. Not that he couldn't do good works or mighty works or miracles. Not that he was unable to, but that he's choosing not to. It's not the lack of faith that's somehow, you know, sucking his abilities away. Mark isn't saying that. He's saying that Jesus couldn't do miracles there and be true to his ministry. His goal was to do, was not to do miracles and heal people and that was it. His goal was to do miracles to point people to the gospel and so when he knows they are not going to receive me, they are out and out rejecting me, then he will not do miracles. He cannot because he will not. Miracles were for the purpose of growing faith in him, growing belief in him so when there's clear unbelief, he's not going to do a miracle. Similar to the parables. You remember the parables? Clear unbelief. So I'm going to teach you in a way that will enshroud the truth. I will hide it from those who don't want to believe and reveal it to those who do. Jesus is omnipotent. In his divine nature, he never gave up any of his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. And omnipotence is not omnipotence if it is bound by anything but its own will. So Jesus could not because he would not. He is the one that's limiting himself because of what's happening. He could not because morally and spiritually it would have been wrong. He was constrained not to reveal his power in such an environment of rejection and unbelief. When Mark says he could not, it doesn't mean that Jesus was physically unable to. Like he's trying to and he just feels tired and doesn't have power. It means that it would be morally and spiritually inconsistent. Wherever the kingdom of God is rejected, it would be inappropriate for the king to bestow on these unwilling subjects all of the benefits of his rule and reign. He's not going to grant it to unbelievers. A skeptic who says, yeah, just go ahead and prove it to me. Not going to get that from Jesus. You remember, by way of example, Jesus on the cross, the religious leaders say, just come down, And if you come down, we'll believe. Could he have come down off the cross? He said he could, right? I can call legions of angels to help me. Is he physically able to? Yes. 
But he could not. Why? Because if he did that, he wouldn't have fulfilled his mission in glorifying the Lord. So he did not. He could not because he would not. So here, he does no miracle there. I love how verse 5 has this tone of sadness and sorrow. Like, he can't do these things. He's not doing these things. And then it says, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's a funny thing when just a couple of miracles is a bad day for you. (laughs) That's how you know you are the Messiah. But he can't do these miracles because of their unbelief. And that's the second reality. Unbelief robs you of enjoying the power of God, the fullness of that power. Why? Because unbelief is the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of believing. And Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And pleasing God is the most satisfying thing to our souls. And so therefore, if you don't have faith, you're not pleasing God and you're not enjoying the fullness of his power. Again, it's not that Jesus is unable to help you. It's that you're unwilling to be helped. And so on account of their unbelief, they're deprived of Jesus working in their midst. Their unbelief prevents them from enjoying the fullness of what Jesus has to offer. At the most basic level, unbelief prevents you from enjoying salvation. But unbelief, even as a believer, can stop you from enjoying the benefits of living a sanctified life in obedience with the Lord and instead receiving his discipline. You can come to faith or come to Jesus in faith like Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood and you'll see amazing power on display. But if you reject him in unbelief, he will not do for you what he had done for others. Our text ends in verse 6. And he wondered at their unbelief. He wondered. Some of your translations might say marvel. Most often that word is used to speak of the crowds, marveling at Jesus, at what he's doing, what he's saying. There's only two times that that word is used of Jesus marveling at somebody else. My question is, what makes Jesus marvel? What makes him marvel? Only two things that we see in the Gospels. Number one, faith. And number two, faithlessness. Here, unbelief makes Jesus marvel. Luke chapter 7, verse 9, the faith of the centurion makes Jesus marvel. He marvels at the centurion's faith. But here he marvels. He's not surprised by unbelief. He would have expected that. But he's shocked because of the callousness of their hearts. Hostility toward him, even though they know the truth. But they want to reject it. That's what makes Jesus wonder. That's what makes him sad. That's what makes him marvel. I wonder, are you scandalized by the simplicity of the gospel message? Have you become so familiar with Jesus that you're no longer convicted by his word? We've talked about it before. A sense of spiritual frostbite has set in where you don't feel anymore. The way that you feel again is you have to get next to the fire of God's word and stare at Christ and thaw out wherever you are spiritually frostbitten. Come to him today. You can turn from unbelief today. Ask him to open your eyes. Ask him 
to give you that gift of faith. Ask him to grow in you greater affections and love for him. Ask him to help you follow him. Ask him to thaw out your heart. Plead with him. Say, I don't want a calloused heart. I want to believe. But we're not done with our passage yet. He was going around the villages teaching. He leaves Nazareth. And I would plead with you, turn today... Because as we saw last week in Psalm 32 and here as well, there is a time when Jesus may not be found. And here he's leaving their village. He takes his glorious ministry somewhere else. And this is the last time that we will see Jesus in Nazareth in this gospel. He's done. So where are you? Where are you in relation to Jesus? Do you take offense at him? Are you scandalized by him the way that these townspeople are? You see him, you know what he teaches, and yet there's something standing in the way where you say, I just can't fully surrender to him in that way. I can't fully receive and acknowledge. There's something that you are just butting up against that will enable you to stop. It's a stumbling block to you. Do you wonder? Do you marvel at Jesus in a way where you would look with astonishment but then say, I need more. There's got to be something else. If you're here this morning and you're not offended by Jesus, you love him, the Apostle Paul would tell us that's because the Spirit has done a work in your heart and enabled you to see, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord and mean it and love it but by the Spirit. So if you love that Jesus is Lord of your life, he is master over you, you are his slave, and your will is dead, and his will lives in you. If you love that, and you treasure that, that's because God has worked in your heart. But if you are offended by Jesus, there's something that stands in the way between you and saving faith. There's something that you feel like, I don't fully understand, or I I need more explanation. I would just ask you this question. What must Jesus do to unoffend you? What would you demand of Jesus to appease your skepticism? If you are skeptical of Jesus, what is it that you would demand he do to make you no longer a skeptic? He does miracles and he teaches, and that's not enough for these townspeople. Why? Because ultimately at the bottom of unbelief is a heart that says, I just don't want to submit. I don't like it, and therefore I don't want to submit. Yes, there's an aspect where it's just too common, too familiar, but there's something deeper than that. Unbelief flows from a desire to not want to believe. Unbelief isn't primarily because of questions or struggles to understand. They clearly understood. His teaching is amazing, and he's done miracles. They clearly understand, but they obscure what is obvious because they don't want to believe. There's no reason to obscure what's obvious. It's so clear, and yet they say, we don't want to believe, and so we're going to make this harder than it needs to be. What is it that you struggle to believe most about Jesus? Believer and non-believer alike, saved and unsaved alike. What do you struggle most to believe about Jesus? Maybe you think you're too sinful to be loved by him. His word tells you that you're not. Will you believe him? Maybe you think that he's just not as amazing as he claims that he is. His word says he is more beautiful and lovely 
than anything in this world. Will you believe him? Maybe you feel like you're going to get bored of him or he won't satisfy you. The psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. You can't get fuller than the fullness of joy. What's the fullness of all joy? That's everything you need to be satisfied. What is it that offends you most about the gospel or about Jesus or about his teaching? Whatever offends you most about the gospel, that's what the gospel is trying to reach into your heart and claim for Christ. So will you submit? Will you submit to him? You cannot come to Jesus on your own terms. You must come exactly as he demands. And so it's very critical that we see him as he truly is and as he reveals himself to be in the scriptures. Not as we would hope that he is or wish for him to be, but exactly as he says. So where are you in relation to Jesus? Do you believe Do you cling to him? Do you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Or do you say, you know what? There are things that I need to figure out before I will gladly submit. These townspeople in Nazareth are a warning to us. We've seen their response to Jesus and how they have treated him. And I think the only question that's appropriate for us is how do you treat Jesus? Don't let the sun go down on this day without examining your heart in this reality. What is keeping you from marveling at him? Like we said last Lord's Day in Psalm 32, you won't marvel at him the way that you should if you don't see yourself correctly, biblically, rightly. If you see yourself as a decent person, a good person, you work hard, you try hard, and Jesus just does the rest, then you won't marvel at him. But if you see yourself as a sinner condemned to die in judgment, hell itself is yours and the wrath of God abides on you now. John 3, 36. If you understand your predicament, if you understand your dilemma, then you will see a rescuer that is more amazing than anything this world has to offer. And he rescues you you because of his love for you. He loves you and gave himself for you. So what's stopping you from marveling? Marvel at Jesus. And ask your heart this morning, does Jesus marvel at you? He marveled at their unbelief. What is it that Jesus may be marveling about in your heart? The way to conquer unbelief is to marvel at Jesus, to wonder in awe and adoration at the Savior. The way to conquer him Being amazed by your unbelief is for you and I to be amazed at him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of a warning this morning that is so kind of you, so gracious of you. To point our hearts to the question, do we marvel at you and do you marvel at us? God, I pray that you would grow faith, that you would grow belief in our church family, that we would take you at your word, that we would not obscure what is obvious like the Nazarenes did, that we would, by your grace and according to your word, we would submit with joy to what you have clearly said. God, we pray 
with the Father that we will see in a few chapters in Mark. We believe. Help our unbelief. We believe. We submit ourselves to you. Help us in the areas where we're struggling to submit. But we come to you and we ask that you would grow in us a a love for you, a wonder at who you are, an awe, an adoration, an amazement, that we would not be like these townspeople, that we would be amazed in your presence, that we would not be astonished, but then also say, it's just too common. We're too familiar. No, may we never become unimpressed by you and your amazing love towards us. We stand amazed in your presence at this very moment and wonder and marvel over how you would love us, sinners, condemned, unclean, and at the same time, so desperately loved. Grow our faith in you. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.